all of creation, all of the earth, make straight a highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Call back the sinner, wake up the saints, let every nation shout of your fame. Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride waiting for the groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for a king, we sing, even so come, Lord Jesus. Father, as we think about the coming of Christ, we thank you for the hope that is ours. 
in Christ. Thank you that we gather today as your church. In the spirit of a crucified and risen Savior. And the one who is promised to reappear. Thank you, Father, for your promises to us, for your grace with us. Be glorified in our worship today, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. It's always a, a great privilege to uh, have children in our worship services. Uh, we, we uh, our church, we love children, we embrace them, and it's always a joy to uh, have the opportunity to dedicate our children to God. And uh, we have that privilege again this morning. Jason and Kendra, God has blessed you with this little one. And uh, today you come to dedicate God's gift back to him. You're here today because of your own faith in Jesus Christ. And in this public act of dedication, you are declaring your desire that he would be raised in the love and grace of God within the nurturing spirit of the church. In this act, you're welcoming the prayers and the support of the church and declaring your desire that he would early learn the things of God and that his life would be defined by a lifelong commitment to God. In order that this may be accomplished, it will be your duty as parents to teach your child early the fear of the Lord, to watch over his education that he may not be led astray by false teachings or doctrines, to direct his mind to the Holy Scriptures as expressing the will and authority of God for all people, to direct his feet to the sanctuary and to restrain him from evil associates and habits, really as much as possible to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Will you, with the help of the Lord, endeavor to do just that? In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, we read these words. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. What name have you given your child? Caleb Barrett Stevens. Caleb Barrett Stevens, on behalf of your parents, your family, this congregation, we dedicate you to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As I, I, I like to mention every time we dedicate our children to God, that this is the, really a, a threefold covenant that we're entering into today. I sort of see it as a triangle, and at the bottom, foundational base is God, and we know that God is at work even now in Caleb's life, and will always be at work in his life. And uh, Jason and Kendra have come, and they, are, they and their family are one side of the triangle, and they've made their commitments today through the grace of God to do everything possible help Caleb know and follow God all of his life. And we also have a commitment. We're the other side of the triangle. And uh, the church has a commitment to help nurture our children, to love them, care for them. Often it's in uh, structured ways, like a nursery or a Sunday school class or other kinds of ministries. But I often think also it's just in the, in the everyday moments of life when uh, we just show kindness and patience and love and compassion. And we let them chew on your finger. That's a whole other thing too, right? 
That's what you do, isn't it? Yeah. So I want to invite you to stand and to affirm your commitment to Caleb and his family. As the church of Jesus Christ, will you, with the help of God, do everything possible to help Caleb know and follow the will of God? Will you nurture him in the grace of Jesus Christ? And will you love him and be a godly witness to him? And will you help him know and accept the grace of God in his life? If so, answer, we will. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of children. Your plan is so perfect and beautiful. We need your help. We pray for little Caleb today. Thank you for bringing him into the world, for blessing his family with his presence. Today, we dedicate him to you. Our prayer is that his heart would always be turned to you, that he would know the joy and the freedom and the blessing of following you. We pray that you will help him through the the ups and the downs and the struggles of his life to know that your love is constant and that you are faithful and good and may he always respond positively to you. Lord, we pray for Jason and Kendra and ask that you would give them all the strength and wisdom and grace that they need as parents to nurture this little one that you've given them in your love and grace. Pour out your spirit upon them and help them to be parents that they desire to be. Parents who help their child know you and follow you. And Lord, help us as the church. Help us to be the witness that we need to be to help Caleb know what it looks like to follow you and to serve you and to be the church. So in your grace, make us faithful witnesses as well. Thank you again for, uh, for Caleb, for his life, for everything about him. And we give him to you in a spirit of joy because of who you are. And we pray this through Christ. Thanks. You may be seated. We'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has given to us.
as we spend some time praying together. If you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, this morning as we contemplate what you've done for us in Christ, take a few moments of silence to meditate upon the cross, to to think about the great gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and to sense you speaking to each of us through your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you have promised to hear our prayers. You've invited us to pray boldly and honestly, and and that you give us courage to, to relinquish all that we are and all that we have to you. And in this time of prayer, it's exactly what we do. We pray, Father, for your grace upon all who are struggling today with grief or illness, with pain and trouble. We pray for Albert Sadler's family in their time of grief and sorrow, as well as others who this day feel the pain and sorrow of loss. We pray that you will heal all of our diseases through the grace and power of who you are. We pray that you will give hope and courage and healing strength to Bob Jobert and Rich Reynolds. Calvin and Laurel Buecher, to Warren Woolsey, to Bill Getty, to Phil Muker and Mike Raybuck, to Jill Tyson and Bruce Brenneman, to Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, to Linda Roth, to Dick Gould, to Crystal Blake and to Emily Cricklar, and to others who may be on our hearts today. We thank you for the ministries of this church and for all the ways in which we nurture one another through the church. I want to thank you for the gift of our church library. So many resources that we have available to us to to understand what it means to follow you and to know you and to serve you and to be the church and to be your disciples. And we pray that that the ministry of of the library will continue to be something that you use in our lives. 
We thank you for the ministry of churches beyond us. And today we pray for the for St. Mark's Church in, uh, in Rushford. For Father Dennis who leads them. We pray you would pour out your spirit upon this congregation. That they would know your grace and mercy. And that they would continue to be witnesses of your light to their community and beyond. And Father, we pray for our world. We think of of all the people who are refugees in our world. and Particularly, we think about the situation in Greece. We pray, Father, that you will bring relief and help. We pray for all who live with the threat of epidemics and disease and disasters and uncertainty about the next meal, the next drink of water, a safe place to sleep for the night. We pray that you would bring an end to suffering and the struggles of so many and make us particularly sensitive to these needs that may not directly affect us, but are important to us because they're important to you. Father, we pray today for the work of your church around the world. And we pray for Ray and Mary Selden, their ministry in Haiti, and the struggles that they have been facing in the adjustment to a new culture and a new environment. And we pray for their family and that you will help them to know your grace upon them. And we pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters who face persecution and opposition. And today, the more than 70 million Christians in India who still live with so much religious uh, opposition and struggle and threats. And even as some have set a goal to eliminate Christianity from India in the next five years, we pray, Father, that you will give courage and strength and grace and love to our brothers and sisters. Father, we pray that you will continue to open our eyes to your presence with us. Give us grace to continue to surrender to you. And we ask all of this through the mercy of Christ who goes to the cross for us and who leaves for us the model of prayer which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 14. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. 
Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You, then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing, and children may be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. In your eyes, in your eyes. 
Before you're seated, uh, take a minute and share a word of greeting, a word of peace with others who are here in worship today. students uh, just went through this practice of greeting each other, as we do most Sundays. And one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about that is it reminds us that being a follower of Christ is never just about me. It's always about us. Now, certainly there's a place of our faith where we make personal decisions, we make personal commitments. We, we, there is certainly the personal element of being a follower or disciple of Jesus. But it's always in the context of other people, of the church. And it's one of the things I, I think, subtly, greeting each other reminds us that we need more than just our own personal time with Jesus. We need our corporate time with Jesus. And that is, as we probably well know, both a blessing and a curse. You know, we, we are... Blessed to have other people around us in our lives to encourage us and to help us and, and to be there for each other. So we went through this, uh, this uh, dedication of Caleb. You know, it's a, his, his nurturing in the faith isn't just about his decisions. It's not just about Jason and Kendra and their family. It's about us. And, and the, the idea of, of the church helping us, surrounding us, connecting us, it's a great blessing. But it also is a certain element of a curse because that means we have to figure out a way to get along with each other. 
And sometimes that's easier than other times. Because in our human nature, we have a tendency to find ways to not get along with each other. You know, someone said to me years ago, if you want to sum up the history of the church, it's probably divide and conquer. We have a tendency to do that. And you look through the history of the church and you see all kinds of, of times when the church divides. And sometimes those are over deeply theological things. Sometimes, not so much. I mean, I, you know, there, there are stories of churches that, uh, where foot washing is a regular practice. And churches have split over whether you wash the right foot or the left foot first. And, and there are churches that believe, you know, that baptism has split people. And not just the way you baptize in terms of immersion or sprinkling, but also how many times you immerse somebody in the water. And churches have split because some people say one, some people say three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And churches split over that. I, I knew of a church years ago that uh, just, cr- just built a, a beautiful fellowship hall with a state-of-the-art kitchen. It was a great place to gather and have meals. The problem was there was a fairly large segment of the church that didn't think you should cook or eat in the church building. And so when they got together, and it was such a, a big deal that when they got together for worship, they divided in the worship in the sanctuary. And on this side of the church, it were the kitchen users. On this side were the kitchen refusers. And, you know, it was dividing the church. And we can do it over anything. It reminds me of the you know, the, the uh, story of the guy who was stranded on a desert island all by himself. And they come to rescue him and they, they go in and he's showing them around. He's been there for years and they see a building with a little steeple on it. And he says, well, what's that? He goes, that's my church. And they look over and there's another building with another steeple on it. And he says, well, what's that? He goes, well, that's where I used to go to church. You know, it's, it's in our DNA to wrestle with each other. And that's been going on a long, long time. And it's going on in Rome. When Paul writes this letter to the Roman Christians, he is concerned about them dividing with each other. About divisiveness and, and not being the church that he wants them to be. And, and for them, the, the, the issues seem to relate to food and holy days. And the, so there are folks who say that... We ought to set aside specific days and they're holy and they're different than other days. And Paul makes the argument in other places that says, well, every day should be a holy day. And they're dividing about that. Probably the bigger issue is food. And it could take on two different things. Because in the Old Testament, if you, well, if they were Jewish Christians, then they practiced the food, the dietary laws that were set up in the Old Testament. About things you can eat, things you shouldn't eat. And, and all the ways in which you, you, uh, you, you live with food. And, and it wasn't, you know, we look at that and we say, well, it's, you know, it's just, it's just stuff about food. But really, a lot of those things identified you as being Jewish, as being a follower of Yahweh. And if you don't follow the rules that Yahweh himself set up, how can you really be a follower of Yahweh? And so in the church, they have people who are, who are Jewish and Gentile, and the Gentiles who have no, know nothing about those laws and don't have no connection to them say, what difference does that make to us? And the Jews are saying, well, they make a lot of difference because this is what God intended for his people, and it was dividing them. But there's also the other side of the food argument because one of the things that 
they were wrestling with was the Gentile that the Gentiles, of course, came out of a pagan culture, and they were so they would go to the temples, and at the temples there was always a sacrifice, and it was usually meat. And, and it was some form of an animal that you brought and you sacrificed. And so the priest got a part of it. And the rest of it they sold to merchants who sold, then resold it in the marketplace. And there were people who said, look, if it's been sacrificed to idols, you can't eat it. And others said, what's an idol? It's nothing. What difference does it make? It, it, let's, we can eat anything we want to. And it was dividing them. That's why in the first part of this chapter, it talks about some people eat vegetables. You know, isn't it interesting that God doesn't ask people to bring sacrifices of vegetables? There is no broccoli sacrifice. You know? It's just, it's just lambs, lamb and, and, and beef, and, you know, it's meat, because that was really valuable. And, and so there's, you're safe eating vegetables. And so people were saying, look, I'm not going to take a chance on eating meat that's tainted. I'm not going to take a chance on, on doing something with, with the Old Testament sacrifices. So we're just going to eat vegetables. And, and that's fine. The problem is they were saying, if I have to do that, and if I see it that way, then everybody should see it that way. And that's the human problem, is that we, when God speaks to us about something, we want to make it a universal law. We want to say, okay, if this is what God expects of me, then he has to expect that of you. And it's creating division. And the real problem here, Paul says, is that it is creating an atmosphere in which people who are particularly people who haven't been Christians very long, who are, who are weak or immature in the faith, it's a stumbling block for them. And, and they're making progress and all of a sudden this stuff gets thrown in their way and they don't understand it. And, and it's being treated as if it is a core part of the gospel. It is being equated with Christ's sacrifice on the cross and God the creator and the way of salvation and the promise of eternal life and all the core things of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, these things are being talked about as if they are core things of Christ and that you're not really a follower of Jesus if you don't practice things the way I practice them. And it's, called, it's creating a stumbling block for people. In fact, Paul says it is ruining them. That word ruin is it's used, translated a lot of ways, but it is a, a corruption, destruction. In ancient Greek, it was a word that was used to talk about a disease in the body. It talked about uh, rotting wood and rusting iron. It's the word that's used to describe what Herod tries to do to the infant Jesus. It's the word that Jesus uses when he talks about, in Luke 15, about the lost coin and the lost lamb. It's the word, the form of the word that's used in Revelation to describe Satan, the destroyer. And Paul is saying, this isn't just some kind of petty argument. This isn't something that, that you know, you, you, you talk about and, and it doesn't have any bearing. It is making things difficult. It is destroying people's faith. Because we're arguing about things that aren't core, that aren't essential. But we're trying to make them essential. And we're treating them as if they are essential. And we're backing people into corners. And people are uncertain about why we're doing that. And it's causing them to stumble and fall and be ruined. And Paul warns them and he warns us about it. 
The, um, the thing that we have to, that we wrestle with is being self-centered. You know, we're, we, we, we forget that the gospel is not just about me and my opinion. It's about us. It's about all of us. And we struggle to see that. And sometimes we get so enamored with ourselves, we don't realize what we're doing to other people. And Paul says, you need to see that. We've got to change this. He says, you need to be thinking more about about what people need rather than what you want to say and how you feel about these things. Yes, they're important to you, and, and they, make, they make sense to you. But maybe they don't make sense to other people, and you need to acknowledge that. And to step back and say, is that really a core part of our faith? Or is it just something that John Wesley would call our opinions, as opposed to doctrines? Is it something that works for me, but it doesn't have to necessarily work for everyone else? Is it something that God has spoken to me about because of issues in my life, but he might not necessarily speak to other people about it in their life? And see, this destruction that's happening in the church, it's not just about other people. It's about us, too. Because if we are so cold-hearted toward other people and so stone-hearted toward other people that we don't care that what we're doing is hurting them, then Something's wrong with us. And we need to see that. And he says in verse 20, it is tearing the church apart. It's not just some petty difference. It is tearing apart God's church. And when that begins to happen, it's not even just about us inside these walls. It is about how people view us outside the walls. I can't tell you how many times through the years people have said to me, you know, I'm, that church has a bad reputation. And I say, well, why? Because they're always fighting with each other. And everybody knows that. And the reality is it's not just how people think about the church. It's about how people think about God. Because the church represents God. It's destructive. Self-centeredness always is. And it's really what this boils down to. I'm more concerned about me and what I want and how I think and how I feel than I am about how that may affect other people if I impose that on them. Haddon Robinson used to tell us in preaching class that one of the key questions you need to ask about every sermon is not, it should be, What do people need to hear, not what do I want to say? And it's not always the same thing. Because the reality is, what we ought to be thinking about is not just even what people need to hear, but how can they hear it most effectively? How do we say things in a way that people can hear? How do we communicate the gospel in a way that that people are open to it? And if our mindset is, I'm going to make sure people know and think and see things the way I think is right, then it will always lead us to pushing and forcing and shoving things down people's throats. 
And I know that because I've done it. I suspect you've done it. See, the problem is often our mindset is, I want people to know that I'm right. And in the kingdom of God, in the church, we're much more concerned about relationships and witness and other people than we are about proving to people that we're right. And that's hard, especially when we know we're right. But I think Paul is saying, okay, so you prove to people that you're right, and if you prove to them you're right, and they see that you're right, but they can't stand to be around you, what have you really gained? And that's our struggle. And it's so hard when God has spoken to us about something and it's important to us and we want other people to see it's important too and we are right and when we get into these conflicts with people about these things, we become passionate about them and they're important to us. And so often our mindset is, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure people know I'm right. As opposed to thinking... If they don't, if it doesn't, they don't ever get the feeling to understand that I'm right, but they are, are more open to Christ, then that's success. And it's, you know, it's going to mean that we live with a whole lot of complexity and messiness as the church. I mean, it's a whole lot easier if everyone thinks the exact same thing about everything. I mean, that, that, that's easy. We, we all just say the same things, think the same things, see things the same way. And, and I don't know if that's possible, but if it's possible, then that would make it easy. But the reality is we're all different. And God works with us all in different ways. And we all come at things in different ways. And somehow we have to come to the place of saying that's okay. In fact, it's good. But it's unsettling to live with that kind of complexity and messiness. We want everything tied up in a neat bow. We want to put everything in the box. And that way we don't really have to think about things that much. But the reality is the kingdom of God is always about thinking about things. And figuring out how to get along with people. And open-endedness and messiness and complexity. And the point is not to try to control it. It's to... Figure out how to live in the middle of it as the people of God. I mean, when I think about, about Christ and I think about his life, he has so many things that are, leave so many things open-ended. I mean, most of the stories he tells are open-ended. And you get to the end of it and you think, okay, what do we do with that? And there are so many encounters he has with people that are left open-ended. And so many times when you know Jesus, well, we know Jesus is always right about everything. And yet so many times he walks away from circumstances not trying to prove that to people. But just loving them and caring for them and being patient with them as he is with us. And I think that's why Paul says, living this way, having this mindset, this attitude 
of, of not worrying about whether people know we're right or not, but loving people, caring for people, being the kind of witness for people that draws them to Christ. Living with that mindset, it's not just a good idea. It's really, it's, it's a way of living that honors God. And it honors God because it's a way of living that forces us to trust God. If everybody thought the same way, had the same mindset, the same perspective, we wouldn't really need to trust God for each other. But because we're all different, because we're challenged, because we, we face different perspectives and ideas about things, and we weigh into the messiness and the complexity of that, it forces us to trust God in the midst of it. It forces us to say, okay, can I possibly learn something from this person? Can I see, is God, does God have something to say to me through that person? And trusting God and thinking that way honors God. Because it creates a spirit of openness in our hearts. Which is what God's always wanting. Paul says in verse 15, what we're really talking about is, is walking in the spirit of Christ's love. That's really what all this is about. Walking in the spirit of Christ's love. And to do that means that we think more about others than ourselves. It means that we care that how we live and how we treat people may make them stumble, may bring ruin to their lives. And so we do everything in our power to avoid that. And really what we're talking about is having a vision of the cross. And not so much as we look at the cross... But having a vision of life looking from the cross. Because here is Jesus who is perfect and right about everything. And doesn't worry so much about proving it to people. But he lives a life of love and compassion and patience. He's more concerned that people know that God loves them and cares for them. And that he's come to to save them than about them understanding and seeing that he is right. It's a vision of the cross, of sacrifice. That's what he's calling us to be. And at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Because the reality is, anything we know of Jesus is because of the grace of God in our lives. Anything good in us, anything we figured out about being a disciple of Jesus is because of the grace of God in our lives. And it is imperative that we live in that mindset. Because in that mindset, it's pretty hard to be arrogant. But rather, it creates a spirit of humility. And as we come to this table today, this is a table level ground too. We don't come to this table because we figured out everything. Because we, have, we understand all the intricacies of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And if people just saw things like us, then they'd understand it too. We come to this table because of God's grace. Because of his mercy. And not because we deserve it. But because God is good. And loving and patient with us. Because that's how God is with us. The desire of our hearts is that we live that way with each other.
I suspect that there is something, someone, some circumstance that even as we're talking this morning has come to your mind that there, that someone has a different perspective about something that's important to you and you're finding it difficult to let that go. Finding it difficult, not wanting to change them and correct them and, and be impatient with them. And in this moment, as we all know that, see that, wrestle with that, to remember that anything we have, anything good, anything that's happened in our lives, is not because we are so great, but because God is so loving and kind and merciful and patient with us. So I'm going to ask us just to take a 30 seconds of silence to think about that circumstance, that person, that that thing, that perspective, and ask God to give us the grace to walk with each other in the loving spirit of Christ. Father, we come today acknowledging that we struggle with being self-centered. We lament the fact that sometimes we have been stumbling blocks for people. Forgive us. Lord, help us to be set free from the need to prove that we're right so that we have all the energy to help people see that they are loved by us, by others, mostly by you. Father, give us the spirit of Christ. Help us to see one another from the cross. And in that vision, to be the church that brings honor to you and glory to you through the grace of Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. 
Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intinction. It just means to dip in. So as you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. If coming to the front is difficult for you, or if you simply prefer, we have a tray of bread and cups happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know when your row is released. And I also have gluten-free wafers here and cups. And if you'd like those, just let me know as you come forward. I, I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to Christ and, and with a desire in your heart to have the Spirit of Christ toward one another, and come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it by the sun. I hear the Savior say, strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thy all in all, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it by
receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.